This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Regulators in the UK brought forth new rules that would break up retail and investment banking. It is a concept very similar to what was done here in the United States many years ago with Glass-Steagall and continues to be a debate in the wake of the financial crisis. For the United Kingdom, this is is, is being written on several fronts, their way of countering the too-big-to-fail concern over there. To look more at this proposal, we're joined here in the studio by our friend Peter Conti-Brown, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at Wharton. And also joining us on the phone is uh, William Black, Associate Professor of Economics and Law at the University of Missouri Kansas City, and he's also the author of the book, The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. Bill, great to talk to you on the phone again. Good to be back. Thank you very much, Peter. Great to have you. Always a pleasure. Uh, Bill, I'll start with you because this is I- I- interesting from for the United States. From what perspective? Uh, it, the question is whether they're going to end the destructive race to the bottom. Uh, So the U.K. actually has a different theory than the E.U. and the United States. They call it ring fencing, but it's – you could also say uh, it's the old uh, Chinese wall theory. So they're going to create this separately capitalized entity um, that is going to do the investment banking, but you can continue to do the investment banking. The EU is mostly proposing to do something like the Volcker Rule, which is bringing back a bit of Glass-Steagall in the sense of uh, pushing proprietary trading uh, out of the uh, too-big-to-fail banks. So, I mean, it's not really a surprise that we're seeing this type of a push forward because of, of what happened in the financial crisis. Really, uh, the, the big banks are the focus of, of pretty much every government right now. Well, except that there's now, um, most recently, a push-push back, yeah. uh, and that is that the uh, Tories uh, are, in general, saying, wait a minute, uh, let's stop this uh, re-regulation stuff, uh, because they want to go back to the uh, competitive race to the, the bottom on uh, financial regulation, with the idea of preserving... Uh, the city of London uh, as a top financial center. So they actually view the EU rule uh, as one of the great threats to the city of London. Peter? So the the ring fencing idea that that uh, Professor Black mentions is really intriguing because it's not it's not exactly fair to say that that the UK's proposal is uh, is glass steagall all over again on the other side of of the Atlantic. The difference is that there would be a common board of directors over the holding companies that maintain both the investment and retail sides of the banking. It'd be as though Morgan Stanley and J.P. Morgan Chase were still the same bank, uh, but they just divided their their functions. Now that division is, as Professor Black mentioned, uh, kind of a Chinese wall. The important he- point here is that even as decisions could be made at the top that could affect both branches of those banks, those decisions would be under heightened regulatory scrutiny. And then key to these proposals, it, they, the separate functions would have separate 
capital structures. And that means the the amount of equity needed to fund those businesses right. would be made without reference to the other businesses. So if you've got you've got requirements to have a certain amount of equity on your books for your retail and banking side, you couldn't say, well, you know what, we're we're raising a lot of debt on a retail side, but guess what? We got some good equity right. on investment. That wouldn't work under a ring fenced proposal. It works now and uh, under the current model. And so it's that's quite different from Glass-Steagall, which we saw again as the uh, uh, famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, announcement that from here on out there will be a J.P. Morgan investment bank, and there yeah. will be a or sorry a Morgan Stanley uh, investment bank, and J.P. Morgan will go uh, on the commercial side. And Bill, this uh, for those people that don't know, Glass-Steagall was something that was around uh, right after the uh, the depression happened uh, in the early '30s, correct? Yeah, it was actually uh, adopted uh, as during the Great Depression yeah. as a follow-up to the PCORA hearings about uh, the causes of the crisis. And it, and it lasted for quite some time, but then, for, uh, from what I understand, was repealed in the late 90s. Uh, what happened at that point in terms of the repeal of it, and why haven't we seen this continue? Is it really the influence of the banks? So um, I was for many years a financial regulator and lived this uh, quite some uh, time. Uh, it's a complicated story. First, uh, you have to separate what was happening at the regulatory level mm -hmm. from what was happening in Congress. And so um, Alan Greenspan hated Glass-Steagall, and he subjected it to the death of 10,000 cuts in terms of regulatory waivers and loopholes and such. So by the time it was uh, effectively repealed, it's not formally a repeal, uh, in 1999 under Clinton, there wasn't a whole lot left of uh, Glass-Steagall. Uh, the law was delayed so long, the adoption of um, the law that essentially repealed Glass-Steagall, uh, despite overwhelming support for it, um, not on a liberal versus uh, conservative uh, division, but on an industry division. Uh, and, and so it used to be actually blocked the passage of this repeal by fights between the big banks and the little banks uh, and between the insurance companies and the banks. And basically they reached sort of a private accommodation with each other, and then they jointly pushed for the passage of Glass-Steagall, and it passed on a bipartisan basis under the Clinton administration. Yeah, so I am—I was not a financial regulator during the time, but I am a financial <laughs> historian. And the story of Glass-Steagall, as Professor Black notes, is, is a really fascinating one. And it's fascinating for all kinds of reasons. So first of all, when we hear politicians in the United States saying, we need to bring back Glass-Steagall. So yeah. Martin O'Malley has kind of made this. He wants to be the glass Bernie Sanders, I think, also is Bernie talking Sanders about it as well. And, and, and Hillary Clinton has made uh, uh, head nods in that direction, too. Yeah. What's tricky about that is is it's not even clear what that means. So restoration to Glass-Steagall at what point in time? Mm -hmm. And while it's true that there was an acceleration in the late 80s uh, under uh, the Greenspan Fed to whittle away at its meaning both through regulatory pronouncements about what kinds of businesses commercial banks could engage in. Yeah. Uh, that had been underway uh, since, since arguably since you know, 1956 with the passage of the Bank Holding Company Act that gave the regulators the authority to make exceptions. And make exceptions they did. And this was ongoing through the decades, accelerated during the 1980s. Uh, famously, uh, uh, Paul Volcker 
lost a vote, which is very rare for a chairman to do, lost a vote on his own board of governors right before the end of his term on precisely these kinds of questions. They were merger approvals mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, that, that Volcker thought was violating the spirit of, of Gla the Glass-Steagall apparatus, even though the, that apparatus gave the regulators the authority and discretion to make certain exceptions. So that by the time Graham leach Bliley comes along in 1999 with this overwhelming bipartisan uh, support, it, it formalizes some very large aspects mm. of of the breakdown of uh, of how that industry played out. Uh, we're talking here in the studio with Peter Connie Brown uh, of the Wharton School, assistant professor of legal studies and business ethics. On the phone with us is uh, William Black, who's an associate professor of economics and law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. So then, from what we're we're talking about here with the United Kingdom, Peter is. We're talking about something that they have wanted to put in, into play. In fact, they have it set to go in 2019, I believe, yep. is the separation that uh, that these banks will have to deal with. Uh, this is just basically what we're reading in the news now, just a reinforcement that they want to continue to to move forward to get to this point. Right. There are a few things that are very surprising. So I'll, uh, maybe, maybe you detect it in the way that I've discussed it. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of, of the wholesale... Uh, political enthusiasm for kind of a, a, a neo-Glass-Steagall regime, mm -hmm. largely because I'm skeptical that the discretion that would be given to regulators to make the exceptions that they'd have to make is going to be durable. Okay. I like the UK's model a lot more, and I like the UK's model more because it's simpler in this key sense, that it's focusing on the capital structures of yep. these businesses. Yeah. So that the risks to investment banks or to that are acting either as you know uh, the old old school merchant banks just trying to fund the the uh, the banking uh, of of business, or if they're acting as hedge funds speculating on market movements, that they ha cannot rely on a depository base. Uh, and and separate equity uh, yeah. to justify their existence. They've got to have separate justification. It's like the old robbing Peter to pay Paul yeah, philosophy, right. right? You so so this is this is the this separation. This is what they call the ring fencing. Yeah. Which in the United States we have two post Dodd Frank uh, uh, a similar structure for big international banks. Uh, I think can can use can be can be a really a hopeful thing. Um, but something that Professor Black said that is really worth worth putting. Uh, uh, you know, paying attention to, is the politics of Glass-Steagall and banking regulation generally mm -hmm. are so curious because you get you end up getting people on the uh, it's bipartisan no matter how you slice it. So the bipartisan majority that passed Gramm-Leach-Bliley, which may or may not be a majority now, is Democrat and Republican establishments sure. that you know view. The, the operation of, of Wall Street and politics is just something that's always been. Um, they're going to be opposed to this, right? Sure. And, uh, and, and are opposed to this. But there's also a bipartisan enthusiasm toward sticking it to the banks sure. and reforming yeah. these things. And you can say that it's, you know, maybe some people think that's populist overheating and other people say, you know, this is exactly what is needed. The Appease is, the masses a little bit. Exactly. And so the question is, politically, how does this play out under the current Republican versus Democrat model? Uh, it's hard to, to say because as we see in the Republican Party, for example, that conference is deeply divided. Yep. And while the Democratic conference is a little bit more coherent, those divisions exist within the, the, the Democratic Party as well. 
William, uh, Bill, I, I get the sense a little bit as well that, as Peter alluded to, that uh, the conversations that may take place here in the United States by uh, political entities wanting to maybe think about some sort of version of Glass-Steagall or maybe even looking at the U.K. version, in some respects, you have to take them with a grain of salt at this point. Yes, and it's the interplay of U.S. and U.K. politics that is most critical. So basically, every major Republican candidate has called for the repeal uh, in pretty much entirety of Dodd-Frank. So they are in one very different camp uh, from every Democratic uh, candidate. But uh, the U.K., the surprise was that they were willing to adopt this ring fencing. Now, it has enormous weaknesses. Its central premise is that the two halves of the bank, the investment bank and the commercial bank, will treat each other as if they had no affiliation. Like the language from the Bank of England is as if they were third parties. And that's never going to happen. Right. You know, anybody who's ever dealt with banks knows that that is a um, fiction. But the real key is it's, uh, the ring fencing is under assault uh, very much by the Tories. And th- there will be enormous uh, exceptions likely carved out of ring fencing. And there's an effort to kill it entirely. What would potentially be those exceptions uh, that, that we might see? Uh, the capital requirement um, that uh, Peter aptly talked about has actually been superseded in many ways. In other words, the original theory of ring fencing was that the investment banking activity was riskier. And in any event, there's no public policy reason mm-hmm. why we should be subsidizing and what an investment bank does is take ownership positions. So why would any conservative want a public subsidy for some money-making businesses that they would have it and others would not, depending on you know, whether an investment bank was involved? So um, the total sum of all that was let's have a higher capital requirement uh, for the investment banking activities, except that nowadays – uh, they've increased the capital requirement for the general bank, and it's actually higher than the level they were proposing uh, for the um, investment bank. So th- they're using that as an argument of saying this is simply already out of date. Uh, it's going to hurt the city of London competitively. It's going to cause uh, enormous cost in implementation, yeah. and you should therefore repeal it in its entirety. Do you think realistically, though, that that harm that they're talking about is warranted? Well, no, I think I take a uh, different view. I mean, um, I see no reason why we should be subsidizing, as I said, uh, public ownership positions. I think on a conservative or libertarian view, that's just a terrible policy. Uh, So uh, I think that uh, separating the bank functions entirely uh, was a very good idea. I certainly agree with Peter. I've, again, I've seen it, uh, that you uh, have to do the best you can on the regulatory side, and it's never going to be remotely perfect. Uh, there's always going to be the banks lobbying to try to gut the legislation. But that separation actually worked quite well in the United States for many decades, and I think it would uh, actually be a good rule going forward, not just for the United States, but for banks in general. Peter? So the the surprise to me 
is that the the UK's the Bank of England's uh, financial policy committee has has stuck to its guns even this far. That's a very welcome surprise to yeah, me. Yeah. I mean, in the the usual story of the political economy of bank regulation is that you get a crisis, you get a lot of populist enthusiasm mm-hmm. for reforming the system, and then it'll go quiet as uh, major industry players start chipping away over time. Now we are uh, uh, so we're, we're now seven years removed from the crisis. Many electoral cycles on both sides of the Atlantic have happened. And the fact that we've got a regulator that's still sticking to its guns this far along is 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 frankly quite impressive. Now, now whether it's going to stick or not is yeah. is an open question. Um, and, but I think that that should give give courage to those like me who see that there's a public regulatory function to be followed that isn't simply you know puppetry uh, on behalf of major industry players. So assuming that this does continue and and it does follow this path into 2019 and we start to see the, you know this separation that we've been talking about then what is kind of the 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 takeaway for other bank of you know you know the fed and and various entities around the globe you know can this kind of be a jumping off point where we will see more of this in other spots around the world i mean that that sorry go ahead bill we are seeing that i mean there's a major eu initiative uh as well and again they're worried about the competitive effects they're trying to create a whole new regulatory apparatus through the ECB, which has never done regulation. And I would push back a little on this whole populist thing, Um, but again, it may actually support Peter's thesis. Uh, I've read, uh, you know, the UK parliamentary inquiry. That was not a populist inquiry, and they created a separate commission, and the commission was by basically big bankers. So the idea of ring-fencing... Uh, came out of not a populist uh, thing at all, but uh, a study that had tremendous uh, input from the industry uh, and the largest banks. And there was, at one time, agreement uh, that they needed to do these things. Now, as I said, it's under active assault now, so we'll see. Peter's certainly right. It's impressive that it's continued to this point. But the Tories are now really making a push yeah. on uh, uh, the city of London's competitiveness. And, and to clarify, I mean, I was I was uh, I was giving a caricature of what the standard political economy story is around financial regulation. And when many people say populists, uh, they they say they use this in kind of an accusatory, derogatory tone. What they may be saying, or they might better be saying, is democratic, right? So sure. there is enough enthusiasm among the populace uh, to say. This is a problem that needs to be reformed. Now, standard populist uh, reforms may be, you know, not very technical or maybe, uh, you know, uh, take too too simple or rosy a, a story. Um, but I, I completely agree that there's nothing. It, the ring fencing is very serious. And what's interesting about the UK model is people like Mervyn King, who's former governor of the Bank of England, Andy Haldane, who's still the chief economist, Adair Turner, who's the former chief regulator, who's just written a book about all of this. They take a, a they 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 speak about these things in ways that would just be almost unheard of for senior um, 
especially standing uh, financial regulators in the United States. Uh, very, it's a very serious group of people who are, are doing very serious things. Well, and the other interesting thing, Peter, is also the fact that uh, in reading behind the uh, this story is that there's also a push with this uh, to really look at the bank executives themselves mm-hmm. and the responsibility that they have or liability that they mm-hmm. have. You know, should we see another bank failure, which is something that has been a topic here in the United States, but whether or not, you know, we would ever see anything develop on that, that's obviously, you know, for for probably another year, maybe another decade at this point. Yeah, I mean, this this is one thing that the the Bank of England uh, has been walking back. So they wanted to shift the presumption uh, toward uh, mismanagement of major banks in the event of of failures and crises. Yep. such that there would be somewhat, I mean, somewhat ill-defined standards and liability that basically says, if your bank fails and causes the spread of financial contagion, we're just going to presume that that's your fault. Right, right? exactly, yes. And again, that might strike, and it certainly strikes me and many others as as kind of an obvious point, right? The buck stops there, the senior management. You made decisions, yep. you're not just victims of your of your environment. Yep. Uh, and that, that just created so much backlash among uh, among bankers and industry and the Tories and I, I think and, and professor black can correct me on this but I'm, I'm I think they walked that back that's dead on arrival they're not pursuing that further bill yeah that is essentially dead um, what people in America don't understand is the different nature of the crisis in the United Kingdom so in addition to all the things that went wrong here which largely went wrong there, they had this massive sale of product um, called uh, payment protection insurance that was the most unbelievable ripoff you can imagine, where um, the gross profit margin was 80%, and this insurance product, the bank would get a 72% commission. <laughs> Think of that. Think of the economics of that. That's a nice piece of, That's a nice piece of change to get, huh? Right, and they sold 50 billion pounds of this stuff. Um, so a single bank sold more than 16 million of these policies. And the testimony in front of the Parliamentary Inquiry Commission is that virtually all retail profits are accounted for by this. And then they also had a special product to, in the vernacular, rip off small entrepreneurs. So. Um, and the uh, the claimants are winning 90% of these claims in front of the ombudsman service. So th- this is a degree of discrediting of the bankers uh, that hasn't occurred here. And in the UK, you're you know as a normal human being, you're bombarded with mm-hmm. in your mail by uh, these services saying, "Let us bring these claim for you." So it's in everybody's mind reinforced all the time, and then they see nobody senior goes to mm-hmm. jail. So there is this underlying rage um, that, that, again, is not really party-specific in the U.K. that helps to explain. And the U.K. senior regulatory folks were offended mm-hmm. at and felt they were conned by the bankers. Mm-hmm. So the, the, what's so what's so interesting about that narrative is that it ties almost perfectly with the the financial history of the United States, political history of the United States around Glass Steagall itself. So yeah. Bill mentioned the Pecora hearings that preceded the uh, um, uh, the passage of Glass Steagall, but those those hearings that were on the front page of every newspaper during especially uh, about about two weeks of their hearings. 
um, had were revealing exactly these kinds of abuses. Mm -hmm. So you'd have testimony from a school teacher who had retired with a nest egg of ten thousand dollars. This is pre-social security, which was supposed to support him and his wife through their retirement, and the investment bank that also held the retail bank to, that held that account, which yeah. is like, well, we got to take that $10,000 and invest it in some Latin American mines. And so they would yeah. send uh, the salesman to say, oh, you got to take literal, this. That's literal, by the way. That's literal. It's yeah. literally Latin yep. American yep. mines. Yep. And so they would send these really good, charming salesmen and, and with inside information saying, hey, I know exactly how much you have in your account. We got a great idea for you. We got a great you. idea. And it, it just wiped them out. Right. So this yeah. was so Glass-Steagall, while, while some people say, oh, this is really good as a systemic risk response, the idea of it originally and why there was so much enthusiasm is, was to prevent ripoff. Right. Yeah. So it was yeah. a consumer financial protection mechanism. Um, and so it, it's intriguing to hear and, and, and now unsurprising to know that the, the UK response to similar kinds of, of banker misbehavior might be that kind of, of separation. So do you think that, uh, that Bill, that, uh, that the policy that they are going to uh, put into play in 2019, do we think that, that we're at a point right now with this statement that they're making by the, by the, uh, uh, towards the banks that uh, 2019 we're going to see this change, or are we still a long way from that because is what you said with the Tories – wanting to really, you know, make some change on this right now. I think the saying is the uh, prospect of being hung in a fortnight uh, concentrates the mind wonderfully. Count on it, sir. Very good. Very good. Peter? So I'm, I'm going to be, you know, 2019 is a big year for financial regulation. We've got some final uh, implementations on the Basel III uh, uh, system that comes in. But there's a lot that can change. And one of the reasons why they put it off so far, they say, is to, to help assuage industry concerns about transition costs. Mm -hmm. But the answer to that is the longer the transition, the longer the industry has to combat implementation yeah. from a political perspective. So I am, I am very impressed, as I've said, about the, about the um, ring fencing proposal with all of its weaknesses. Um, but I am not betting on its implementation in the form as we currently see it. I will be very eager to watch uh, in 2019 to see what it is that we end up having. But you think that some form of it will be in play when we get to 2019? I'm not even sure I could make any yeah. kind of prediction, frankly. Yeah, exactly. Great to have you both. Uh, Bill, great to have you on the phone again. Thanks for joining us. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.